Welcome to the Faith Movement Podcast, a platform from where we can share our talks, reflections and discussions with you. The Faith Movement aims to advance understanding of the Catholic faith in the modern world. To find out more about us, visit www.faith.org.uk. This time we will be sharing with you the fourth in our monthly series of talks on the theme of giving an account of the hope that is in us. This talk was given by Father Jamie McMorrin, Assistant Priest at St Mary's Cathedral in Edinburgh and St Andrews in Ravelson on the 8th of April 2021. The talk is entitled, Who is Jesus of Nazareth? It's uh, lovely to see you all. Uh, it'd be much better if we were seeing each other in person, whether at Waldingham or Stonyhurst or something like that, rather than me being stuck in the dingy basement of the cathedral house and you being stuck wherever, wherever you're stuck at the moment. Uh, I suppose this is better than nothing though. When Father Ross uh, asked me with a sinking feeling in my own stomach to give this talk and asked him what he wanted me to talk about and he said, who is Jesus? And I thought, well, if you don't know, that's a little bit worrying. But I presume that he's not uh, in need of introduction to someone who's a stranger to him. I presume that he doesn't need his memory jogs, you know, sort of Middle Eastern looking gentleman, early 30s, beard, sandals, long white robe, often depicted nailed to a cross, kind of hard to forget in that sense. But rather, Father Ross was inviting me and inviting all of you to ponder anew the question that we find actually in various forms throughout the Gospels. It's a question in the mind of the people of Nazareth when Jesus stands up to preach in his hometown and they say to him, they say of him, where did this man get this wisdom and these mighty works? Is not this the carpenter's son? His own disciples ask the same question when this humble carpenter subsequently calms the storm with a word, exercising that same authority over the created elements, and they whisper under their breath, who then is this that even the wind and the sea obey him? And the crowds of Passover pilgrims in Jerusalem ask the same question when at last Jesus accepts the signs of messianic kingship and rides in humble majesty into the city of David. According to St. Matthew, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. The question most importantly and most personally that we find on the lips of Jesus himself when at Caesarea Philippi in the shadow of the dominance of imperial Rome and on the site of a gruesome pagan cult, Jesus turned to his disciples and with his eyes fixed on them, looks into their hearts and says to them and says to each of us tonight, what about you? Who do you say I am? I'm going to give my answer, at least part of my answer this evening. It's a very personal question that each of us has to answer for ourselves on our knees before him, responding with our lips, but also with our lives. And it's a question that carries with it the assumption that there's more to this Jesus than meets the eye. That the story of his life, as recounted in the Gospels, is much more than a biography of a long dead celebrity or a collection of wisdom sayings from which we can derive salutary life lessons. The presumption of this question is that this man, Jesus of Nazareth, is like no other man who's ever lived, not only because he was a remarkable human being, although he was also that, but that he was also truly God. God come to reveal himself to his people. God come 
to save his people and God come to live among his people until the end of time. As it will be expressed in later centuries in the Creed, this man Jesus is also God from God, light from light, true God from true God, and consubstantial with the one whom he addresses as Father. The life of Jesus and the answer to this evening's question is therefore not so much a Wikipedia biography, born here, died there, did this in between, but rather a proclamation of the church's faith that this man Jesus is our Lord and our God, that he is alive and that he is the centre point of human history and of our own lives too. We make this proclamation, we, we share these thoughts this evening in the light of Easter, and particularly during uh, these days of the Easter octave, in the company of the New Testament writers, we look back on everything that Jesus said and did during his life on earth, and we understand it with the knowledge of how this great story ends, with his enthronement as glorified Lord at the right hand of the Father. We answer also, of course, within the context of a multifaceted crisis in the church and in the world, when the whole world is talking about vaccines and lockdowns, and our rates and all the rest of it, as important as these things are, tonight we set all of those things aside and reflect on Jesus, talk about Jesus, think about Jesus, and allow Jesus to shape our response to, to these challenging times in which he's placed us. Come storms which arise in our hearts to flood our minds with the light of his wisdom and to dispel the powers of darkness that seem to surround us through the Easter victory that we celebrated just a few days ago. The scriptural tag, the, the subtitle, which Father Ross has given, full of grace and truth, is presumably not about me, but about Jesus himself. And it's a subtitle that points us towards the image of Christ that we see sketched out in the Gospel of St. John, and above all in his prologue, and which I'll suggest we might fruitfully explore this evening. It's an elevated and deeply theological vision of Christ written by John towards the end of his life, but in which he remembers so vividly the one whom he met as a young man, the one who gives joy to his youth, the one whom he met on the banks of the Jordan, the one for whom he dropped everything to follow, the one on whose breast he rested at the Last Supper, and the one to whose empty tomb he raced with Peter on that first Easter Sunday. As he reflects on the one whom he now recognises as the enfleshment of the divine word, the revealer of the Father's heart, and with the Father, the bestower of the Holy Spirit. John wants us to remember, as he writes in another place, that this one about whom he writes is also, and at the same time, the one whom he himself has heard with his own ears, seen with his own eyes, whom he has looked upon and touched with his own hands, one with whom he ate and drank and laughed and cried, the one who called him his friend. That prologue, the first chapter of St John's Gospel, invites us to begin our answer at the very beginning and in this way return to some of the themes of the earlier talks that you've heard. Because the story of Jesus of Nazareth and the answer to the question of, of who he is begins not in his earthly life but in the whole broad sweep of salvation history, the whole sweep of God's plan of love for the human race. As you might know, in Christian iconography, St. John is often depicted as the eagle, because like the eagle, he has a bird's eye view on, 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 on reality. St. Augustine, commenting on this gospel, draws on this image, saying of John, 
He soared beyond the flesh, beyond the earth which he trod, beyond the seas which he looked upon, beyond the air in which the fowls fly, beyond the sun, the moon, the stars, beyond all the spirits unseen, beyond his own mind, by the very reason of his rational soul. Soaring beyond all these, pouring out his soul above him, where did he arrive? What did he see? In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. It's clear from what follows, it's clear from what St John says here, that this beginning of the story of Jesus is not a beginning in time and history. Rather, it's, it's an insight into the life of the Blessed Trinity, and especially on the person of the Divine Son. The story of Jesus then begins in a relationship, begins in his relationship with the Father, which is not historical, but which is eternal. It is, so to speak, before creation and exists outside of time. That there is, in the heart of Jesus's identity, a divine pre-existence, a father-son relationship from which creation itself proceeds. So John here calls Jesus then the Word, the Word through whom all things were made, the word, the word which comes forth from the Father. The Word is spoken by another. The Word depends on someone else for its existence. The words that I'm speaking just now don't have an independent existence uh, for me because it's me who's thinking them. It's me who's formulating them into language and speaking them. They, in a very incomplete way, give you access to my inner life. They give you access to what's going on inside me. Now, the divine word is a bit different because, un unlike me, my words, are, my words are very imperfect and imprecise. And as you're discovering, I need quite a lot of them to express myself adequately. My words have a beginning and an end. They're very forgettable and they'll one day be forgotten forever. God's word is, like him, beautiful and perfect and eternal. In his word, he expresses everything that he is, the whole totality of his being. The word is, so to speak, God's thinking of himself, in which he expresses everything that he is, a thought without beginning or end, and so perfect as to be equal to himself. So this perfection means that the, the one word is, is enough for him. In the Son, the Father has said everything that could be said. As St John of the Cross puts it so beautifully, the Father spoke only one word, and that word was his Son. And this word, he speaks always in eternal silence, and in silence must be heard by the soul. Now, the Fathers of the Church and the early credo statements following them make an important distinction that the word is begotten, not made. That is to say, the son's relationship to the father is similar, yet also radically different from the earthly transmission of life and, and radically distinguished also from the act of creation, about which more in a moment. The son, as St John goes on to say in his prologue, is generated not by an act of the will, as are creatures, but rather he is begotten from the substance of the father, of, by, by his very nature. So it's not the case that God, the Father, at one fine day was thinking in heaven to himself, getting on a bit, you know, it would be nice to, to pass someone on, to pass my wisdom on to, to someone, to have a, a youngster around the place. No, the Son proceeds from the Father's very nature. The Son is also, as we've said, consubstantial with the Father. What does that mean? It means that he has the same substance, the same divine nature. Father and Son 
are not similar in the way that I'm similar to my dad. No, they exist eternally in a nature that is absolutely and perfectly one and identical. So when the man, Jesus of Nazareth, addresses God as father, he's not using an eloquent metaphor to express God's loving care for creation and for him in particular. No, he's revealing the very nature of the Trinity, of the Trinitarian God, and for that matter, inviting us also to participate in it by adoption. So throughout his preaching, Jesus will address God as father, and this is itself a claim to divinity. But he didn't begin to be the son when he was conceived in the womb of his mother. He didn't begin to be the son when he was born in Bethlehem, nor at his baptism or transfiguration when the father's voice was heard, nor at his resurrection or ascension when the father glorified him in the flesh. No, he was always the son because he was in the beginning. And Jesus bears this out in his preaching, and he bears out the truth of what we've said about him as the word. He says the son receives everything that he is from the father, and the father gives everything back in return to the son. As Jesus himself puts it at the Last Supper, all that the father has is mine. The fact that St. John describes God the son as the word, in Greek logos, of the father is important. It's important because St. John, who will tell us elsewhere that God is love, is making it clear that that love is not a feeling kind of love. It's a logos kind of love, a love that is passionate and burning, but yet nonetheless rooted in meaning and in truth and intelligibility. Logos, as, as you probably know, is where we get our word logic from, and also all of those logy words at the end of academic disciplines, theology and anthropology and sociology and biology and so on. These are, or at least meant to be, reasonable discourses about God or about human nature or about society and, and, and so on. The fact that St. John says that at the heart of God the Father is the Logos is to say something very radical about the nature of God, especially in its nature, his nature to the relationship between faith and reason. And this is very important in, in the vision of the faith movement, which seeks to present a new synthesis of, of faith and reason. And it's important also, moreover, in the theology of, of Cardinal Ratzinger, Pope Benedict XVI. Just before he was elected, Pope Ratzinger said, Christianity must always remember that it is the religion of the Logos. In the so necessary dialogue between secularists and Catholics, we Christians must be very careful to remain faithful to this fundamental line, to live a faith that comes from the Logos, from creative reason, and that that, because of this, also open to all that is truly rational. rational. Why? Because there is in God a rational nature, an intelligibility and a reasonable, reasonableness. Why, why does this matter? It matters because when God creates, he creates in a way that is in accordance with this nature. He creates in wisdom and in love and in accordance with his own truth and his own beauty. He creates through his son. He creates through the Logos. And so we can say that his creation itself bears traces of the Logos, an uncanny, albeit imperfect, reflection of his own image. Just as an artist puts something of himself into his masterpiece, so we can see God's fingerprints in the world that he's made. And as the Catechism puts it, that he has left traces of the Trinity all throughout the created world. A universe created through and according to the Logos is, how else can we put it, logical. 
We see this in the laws that govern our universe, laws which are observable and testable and on which the very progress of science depends. Laws of which we are not the authors, but the students. Laws which precede by millennia the presence of human beings there to understand them. God's logic, God's reasonability, God's own ordered nature is reflected in the world. And so the universe is not haphazard or arbitrary, but is itself at a deep level, logical and reasonable and ordered. So we can say not only that God the Son is the eternal word of the Father, but we can also say, as St John does, that through him all things were made, and without him was not anything made that was made. This means that when we are admiring the beauty of creation, a sunset, or a mountain top, or a distant galaxy, we can very truly say in thanksgiving, through Christ our Lord. It's through Christ our Lord that this beauty exists. If the created world bears traces of the Trinity, reflections of God's image and structured according to his logos, then this is true above all of the human person. We know this from the very beginnings of, of, of the book of Genesis. God says, let us make man in our own image and likeness. He's not speaking there in a, in a general way. St. Clement of Alexandria comments, for the image of God is his word, the light who is the archetype of light, and a true man is an image of the word because through his understanding heart, he is made like the divine word and so rational. What distinguishes human beings from among the whole of creation is that we too, uniquely among all the animals, have a rational soul, a soul that is capable of understanding and of reasoning and of loving. A soul capable like God of, of knowing, not only the laws of the universe, but of knowing God himself and of entering into a relationship with him. The human race, because of our special resemblance to God, is at the very pinnacle of creation. But the crown of creation is, is, is not an abstract human nature. Rather, it's one man, the man we're talking about tonight, Jesus Christ. So God doesn't think of human beings as being essentially clever monkeys. No, he models us on Christ Jesus. He is the culmination of God's plan of love. The Catechism says, the mystery of Christ casts conclusive light on the mystery of creation. And reveals the end for which in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. Creation was not made only through him, as St. Paul said, but for him, because God's ultimate intention was to be united with his creation, that his creation would come to participate in his own blessed life, come to be given access to the glory of God's own nature. God made us for relationship with himself through Christ our Lord. And he does this above all, of course, in the incarnation, in his coming among us as a man. Through his singular word, through this word of the Father, becoming flesh in, in, in the womb of the Blessed Virgin Mary. It's in the incarnation that the great distance of natures that separates God from humanity, heaven and earth, creator and creation, is, is finally and at last bridged. The word is enfleshed. The word is incarnated and embodied in Jesus of Nazareth, as in whom, as St. Paul says, the whole fullness of God dwells bodily. Why? For us. God adapts himself, so to speak, to our nature. So this is the other side of that truth of who Jesus is that has to be fleshed out, literally fleshed out by the church in order to safeguard the reality of what God has done in Jesus. Jesus, that is to say, 
is not only the word of the Father consubstantial with him, the one who most perfectly makes God known, but he also shares our human nature in all things except sin. And for this reason, he not only reveals to us what God is like, but also reveals to us what it means to be human. For this human nature, this human flesh that Jesus, that God takes in, on in Jesus of Nazareth, neither is this an abstraction, but very concretely given to him by his blessed mother, Mary of Nazareth. As we express it in the creed, he is incarnate of the Virgin Mary. She is truly his mother, and he, as well as being the eternal son of God the Father, is also because of the incarnation, truly the son of Mary. And so she can be called the mother of God. Although he's conceived in a way that's totally unique through the overshadowing of the Holy Spirit, he becomes through her truly a member of the human race. Since by a unique privilege, she is preserved free from original sin. So the human nature that she gives him is likewise also free from sin. And so it's for this reason that St. Paul can call Christ the new Adam, the one who is the beginning of a new creation, the beginning of a new human race, who will live not in rebellion against God, but in obedient communion with his will. We see this throughout Jesus's life on earth, don't we? He identifies himself with the will of the Father and seeks in all things, above all, to please him. We see it in a particularly vivid way in the Garden of Gethsemane. Interesting that it takes place in a garden. Where have we heard that before? in which Jesus, the man, is experiencing within himself the natural revulsion in the face of death, nonetheless submits his human will to the mission that he's received from his father. In that way, and indeed all throughout Jesus's life, we see him then reversing Adam's rebellion. We see him with his mother, who we call by analogy the new Eve, crushing Satan underfoot. Part of having a human nature is that he also has a true body, a body that is capable of suffering and capable of dying. This it seems like an obvious thing to say, and yet it was called into dispute uh, by in the history of the church. In some ways, we might see it as, a, as an overcorrection, just as in the very first centuries, the Arian heresy denied that Jesus was truly God, or at least that he was not God on the same level as God the Father. So later, an opposite heresies denied that Jesus was really human, or at least that he was a human on the same level as all of us. That Jesus merely appeared to be human, that somehow his humanity was a mask or a disguise that he wore for a time. That Jesus only appeared to die, only appeared to be born and to suffer and so on. A sign of thought held, held that it was scandalous for, for the all-holy God to associate himself so closely with the muck and the mess of created matter. How is it possible that the eternal, the almighty, could uh, demean himself in this way. Because that's precisely what we see Jesus doing in the Gospels. In St. Paul's phrase, we see him emptying himself. We see him being found in human form, and at that, not the human form of an exalted king living in luxury, which would seem more fitting to him, but rather taking on the condition of a slave and dying eventually a shameful death on a cross. Throughout his life, we see him living a real human life. We see him feeling pain. We see him weeping when his friend dies. We see him experiencing hunger and thirst. We see him working hard and getting tired, so tired that he can fall asleep in a boat in the middle of a stormy sea. We see him even suffering temptation and yet overcoming it. These are not only truths contained in the Gospels which help us to understand who Jesus is, but they're also helpful to us spiritually. 
also helpful to us when we feel tempted and tired and stressed out, that Jesus truly understands our human limitations and our human experience because he has been through them himself. As the letter to the Hebrews puts it, we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with us in our weakness, but yet one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. It might be worth dwelling for a moment on that little caveat for a moment, because sin is, at least in one respect, one aspect of the human experience, that Jesus is, is, is different from us. We were all of us born in a state of original sin, and we have all of us, to a more or less serious extent, sinned in our own lives, disobeyed God's commands, and sinned against him. Although on the cross, as we'll see, Jesus takes onto himself the punishment which follows from sin, he is himself completely innocent. And we can at least subconsciously think, on, think of him as being in some way less than human because of this, in some way not completely human, in some way that his humanity is not totally authentic. Think about what we would say if someone whom we admire very much reveals a fault we didn't know about. We would say, well, he's only human or he's a human after all. But Christ's own sinlessness doesn't make him less human. It makes him more human. This is because sin, if we think about it, dehumanizes us. It makes us less than ourselves, less than the person we were created to be. We know this even in our own lives, but we know that when we sin, we're in some way diminished. We're in some way less than we're called to be. We see it to the contrary in the saints, although not without sin in the same way as Jesus and Mary, their likeness to him makes them more attractive and, and more interesting and yes, more human for it. Sin, although often dressed up as glitzy and garish, is at its heart monotonous and dull. It's holiness and sanctity that is the real adventure and the real road to happiness. People wanted to be around Jesus. We can sometimes perhaps forget that. They were attracted surely by his divinity, surely recognising in him the one for whom every human heart longs. But this divinity was made accessible by a humanity which was surely itself also attractive in the broadest sense. He seems to have been physically fit. He and his disciples certainly do a lot of walking. And he was capable of hard physical work. He would surely have been handsome, the fairest of the children of men, as the psalmist puts it. Even more important, his personality, which shines through the Gospels, is deeply attractive. When he speaks, his answers are intelligent and often witty. He's capable of great poetry and sublime mysticism. But his teaching is also down to earth and accessible uh, to the common man of, of his day and of ours. He's a man who feels deeply, who, who loves deeply, who, who gets angry and who gets sad and who experiences joy. But he's also, importantly, a man who is in control of himself, whose passions are integrated under, under the dominion of his rational soul. He's a man capable of deep friendships, someone who loves to be around people and who loves to be around particular people at that. Remember someone once saying that one of the underappreciated miracles of the life of Jesus was that he was a man in his early 30s who still had 12 close friends. This is important because Jesus it invites us to a close friendship with himself. He invites us to a personal relationship with him. He loves the world, not in a general way, but in a personal way. And through Jesus, he loves the world with a human heart like ours. 
He reveals God to us not only by transmitting information about him, but by making it possible for us to love him and to talk to him and have a relationship of love with him, something which would be impossible uh, had it not come, had he not come as a man. Jesus, therefore, is the fulfillment of that longing of the human heart with a God who, for a relationship with a God who's much more than a philosophical equation, who's, who's much more than an anonymous first cause or unmoved mover friend and even a bridegroom, one who consents to be called upon and who will gradually reveal not only his identity and his name, but ultimately in Jesus also his face and his sacred heart. Because this relationship, of course, could never be a, a meeting of equals. It must always be God who takes the initiative, God who, who reaches out to us, God who comes to, to bridge the gap, God who bridges the gap not only of sin, but of nature, which separates us from him. It must be God who reveals himself to us. And as, as we know, that's what we see throughout the whole course of salvation history. And this is, is a tremendous novelty of the biblical God. Perhaps we're so familiar with it that we forget how shocking it is. That the God in whom we believe is a God who speaks. God who enters into conversation. God who speaks and who moreover expects a response. A God who reveals his name to us. Colonel Ratzinger, referring back to our discussion earlier about the Logos, therefore says that God is to be understood not only as Logos, but as Dialogos. Jesus is, is the one who is not only an idea and meaning, but as speech and word and reciprocal exchange of partners in conversation. God speaks to his creation. God speaks to the only part of his creation capable of understanding and responding. He speaks to Adam and Eve, walks in the cool of the garden with them, in easy familiarity. And when through sin we lose this friendship, he doesn't abandon us. It becomes harder for us to, to hear his voice. That's why, by the way, it's hard to pray. It's why it's hard to understand things. It's why it's hard to study. It's why writing, and I'm quite certain listening to this talk, is difficult. But God, nonetheless, continues to speak to us throughout history, continues to communicate himself to us, continues to speak to us through that word that was with him in the beginning, calling out to the human race, calling us to relationship with himself. In the preface to the fourth Eucharistic prayer, we read how this comes about. The prayer says that time and again, God offered them covenant. The basic message of Israel's relationship with God and in Jesus Christ with all of humanity is, I love you. I'm, I'm committed to you. I swear that I'll never forsake you and never abandon you. You are mine and I am yours. Fourth Eucharistic prayer also says that in addition to the covenants offered in the Old Testament, he taught them again by his words through the prophets to look forward, to look forward to a time of salvation, to look forward to the forgiveness of sin. Yes, of course, but also, and, and more than that, to salvation in a, deep, in a deeper sense, to a deeper union with God, a deeper wholeness, a deeper sense of that human fulfillment for which our hearts and souls were made. They look forward very specifically to the coming of a Messiah, a Christ, an anointed king who would establish the reign of God on earth as in heaven, a mighty warrior who would conquer their enemies and who would at last establish peace between the nations. Mysteriously, this promised Messiah would also bring healing to a broken creation and especially to a broken humanity, a one who would feed the hungry and heal disease 
and restore sight to the blind and who would allow the lame to walk. The times of the Messiah would be, therefore, not only the coming of an ideal earthly king, but in some way the beginning of a new creation. We find all of these hopes, of course, filled, fulfilled perfectly in Jesus, the one hope who never disappoints, the one in whom, as St Paul says, all the promises of God are yes and amen. So we can say, we have to say, that the correct hermeneutic, the correct interpretative key of the whole of the Hebrew Scriptures, the Christian Old Testament, is the hermeneutic of Jesus Christ. It's all about him. The flood and the ark and the Passover and the Red Sea, the wilderness and the promised land, exile and return, war and peace, kingdom and kings, prophets and priests, the temple, its sacrifices, everything is, it finds its meaning in Jesus. As the evangelical preacher John Piper puts it, the Old Testament is extraordinarily Jesus-shaped. This is not mere idle speculation. Jesus tells us this himself. His reproach to the scribes, the, one, the ones who knew the scriptures inside out, is that they, they, they lacked the key that would unlock it for them. They, 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 lacked, they, they lacked the understanding that the one about whom the scriptures wrote was standing right in front of them in flesh and blood. He says to them, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life, and yet it is they that bear witness about me. We can hardly blame them because after the resurrection, we hear that the disciples had also similarly failed to understand. Walking by their side on the road to Emmaus, that gospel that we heard yesterday at Mass, he reproaches them with, with such kindness. Oh, how foolish you are and how slow of heart to believe all that the prophets had declared. Then beginning with Moses, beginning with Genesis, that is, and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all, all the, th the things about himself in all the scriptures. We'd have loved to have been present at that Bible study. He showed them how he was central to everything that the people of Israel believed about God, because he was no longer a messenger, he was no longer a mere spokesperson for God, but God himself made man, the word in person. Pope Benedict, in a sermon for the Epiphany, sums it up by saying that we observe both in the created world around us and in the inspired work of word of God, the work of an author who expresses himself in, through the symphony of creation. In the symphony, one finds at a certain point what would be called in musical terms a solo, a theme entrusted to a single instrument or voice, which is so important that the meaning of the entire work depends on it. This solo, Pope Benedict says, is Jesus. The Son of Man recapitulates in himself earth and heaven, creation and the creator, flesh and spirit. He is the centre of the cosmos and of history, for in him converge without confusion the author and his work. So we would expect, wouldn't we, that when Jesus comes to earth, he will be welcomed with joy and, by grat and with gratitude, especially by his own people, the ones who have longed for centuries and centuries that God would come to renew the covenant. God would come to fulfill the promises made through the prophets, would come as their king to unite them and rule them and, and defeat their enemies. That the glory of God would re-enter the destroyed and, and rebuilt temple and never depart from them. And yet, St John tells us in the prologue, he came to his own people and his own people would not accept him. The great tragedy of the work of the incarnation, the great tragedy of the Gospels, is that we do not accept him when he comes to us. There, of course, there are, there are a few there are a few examples. There, there, there are 
There's Simeon and Anna, there's Joseph of Arimathea, a few of the women from Galilee who follow him and, and minister to him. There are, albeit with some confusion and hesitation and one very notable defection, the 12 disciples. Above all, there's Mary, his mother, one who's called Daughter Zion, the beautiful daughter of Jerusalem, who welcomes him with perfect love, not only at the moment of, of his conception, but all throughout life. But we can also contrast the love and the faith of the Virgin Mary with the way he is ignored and mocked and rejected and eventually brutally destroyed by the powers of this world. And if we're really honest, so often also by us. How often we say, not so much through our words perhaps, but through our sinful choices, we don't want this man to rule over us. And yet, even there is good news. Even here, there's fulfillment. Because it's precisely in his death at the hands of sinners that death is itself destroyed. It's precisely in the shedding of his blood that the new and eternal covenant between God and humanity is established. Part of the messianic promise, part perhaps that the scribes had skipped over because it was too uncomfortable, was that God's kingdom would come, that the covenant with all nations would be established, justice would be done only through suffering and through sacrifice. The Messiah would conquer not by killing his enemies, but by dying, by offering himself in sacrifice for his people, and in particular for the ones whom he calls friends. We see this too fulfilled perfectly in Jesus. From the very beginning of St John's Gospel, we see him announced by John the Baptist, the one who is the last and the greatest of the prophets, announcing his coming of the Son, the enfleshment of the Word, by saying, not behold your King, not behold the source of true wisdom, but behold the Lamb. Behold the victim whose blood will be shed. Right at the beginning of the Gospels, before Jesus had said a word, we have the interpretative key. Jesus is the promised lamb. Jesus will play the role of the sacrificial lambs offered in the temple, fulfilling in his own death all of Old Testament worship. He'll be the one who sets us free from slavery. Slavery not to any worldly power, but to sin. He'll be the perfect sacrifice that establishes the covenant and that brings communion. But he'll also importantly be the perfect priest, the one who alone is capable of truly mediating between God and humanity, the one who's truly capable of offering a sacrifice that takes away sin. This is what we celebrated last Friday when we heard, uh, listened to St John describing the death of Jesus the Messiah, his account of how that flesh that Jesus took on for our salvation was offered back to the Father in a willing sacrifice of perfect worship. A sacrifice offered in the name of his whole people and in the name of all humanity. A sacrifice offered at the same time by God himself. A sacrifice in which God the Son calls out in the humanity of Jesus, Father, forgive them. This, for John, is paradoxically the moment of glory. When he talks about the Son in the prologue allowing his glory to be seen, he's not, I don't think, referring to all the many signs of Jesus's divinity which he recounts many of which we haven't had time to go into in this talk. He's not talking only about the many healing miracles that he worked to the amazement of the crowds, announcing the beginning of the messianic age we were talking about. He's not talking about the authoritative teaching in which he takes to himself the divine name, the great I am. 
and introduces himself as the fulfillment of all the many hopes of Israel, the hope for a shepherd king, the hope for nourishing bread that would satisfy their hunger, their hope for a door that which would open their return to paradise. Or rather, he is talking about all these things, but finds them all summed up and contained in the hour in which Jesus offers his whole life, in which he pours out every drop of his precious blood for our salvation, revealing for all time the depth of God's love for us, not only to come among us as a man, but as a man to die for us and for our salvation, and to return in resurrected glory to say, do not be afraid. In this moment, death, the consequence of sin and the price of our disobedience is defeated forever and eternal life is made possible. That's what we're celebrating right now. That's what we're celebrating in Easter week. That's what we confidently and joyfully proclaim in every celebration of the Eucharist all throughout the year. I have to come to a conclusion now. I'm, I'm ashamed to think of all the things that I probably should have mentioned and haven't. I'm consoled when I think that St John himself, at the end of his gospel, had much the same thought when he wrote, Now Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. Were every one of them to be written, I suppose that the whole world itself could not contain the books that would be written. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Jesus, this Jesus about whom I've been speaking tonight, is so much more than I've been able to tell you in this 45-minute talk. In answer to the question, who is Jesus of Nazareth? We've answered with St. John that he is the word who was with the Father from all eternity, his only begotten son and the perfect image of his nature. He's the word through whom the whole of creation came into being, imprinted on our created world, its logical structure and its, glor its glorious beauty. He's the word spoken to Israel through the patriarchs and through the prophets, who in the fullness of time was made flesh in the womb of his blessed mother, revealing his sacred face to the world, in whom is at last made visible the unseen God, in whom the word of God leaps off the page and into human history and begins to interact with men and women in a radically new way. In the flesh and blood that he assumed at his incarnation, he offers himself in sacrifice for us once and for all time on the cross and renewed on the altars of our churches and in the celebration of the sacraments by which his divine life is dispensed to us and which will, I think, be the theme of next month's talk. In this way, the life of Jesus and the answer to the question of who he is is much more than and much more interesting than a human biography. Why? Because it's an invitation. It's an invitation that Jesus extends to us just as he extended it to those first disciples. In response to their question, perhaps prompted by human curiosity, he invites them to come and see. So he invites us tonight to have that question answered, not by me, but by him. He invites us into that eternal dialogue that he has with the Father. He invites us to call upon God as our Father also. He invites us to understand these strange times in which we live, the world around us, in light of his eternal truth and his wisdom. He invites us, who have so often allowed that original likeness to God in which we were made to become tarnished by sin and self-destructive choices, to be remade in relationship and friendship with him. He invites us to listen to the deep word that he speaks to each of us of our hearts this evening, telling us that we are loved, that we are called, and that he alone 
is the key who will unlock the secret of deep human happiness. That he is central to the whole plan of God, yes, but central also to my own life too. And that my own deepest fulfilment will be found only in relationship with him. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. We hope you enjoyed the fourth talk in our monthly series. Subscribe if you wish to hear more from us, including the next in our series of talks, which will be given by Father Michael John Galbraith, entitled Christ's Abiding Presence in the Sacraments. If you wish to hear our previous talks, read some of our articles and publications, or learn more about the faith movement in general, you can visit our website at www.faith.org.uk or like us on Facebook. Thank you and God bless.